Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 2nd of October 2021. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland and your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the host or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. And please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session which follows will not be recorded. And that's an opportunity where you can ask um, Harlan questions. We ask that you please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you need to move around or if you're eating or if you're driving please do disconnect your video because it could be distracting to other members so now we will go over to harlan g good morning to you harlan you're Sorry. muted there you good go good morning maria thank you so much for your service and thank you to all of you who make this possible and anybody out there who thinks i am the one that makes this possible not even close. There are many people who are behind this, who make the website possible. They do the recordings, they do the emails, they do all kinds of stuff that make this go. And I'm so grateful to them. Uh, this morning, um, and by the way, as is my one, it's October 2nd, 2021. And I hope that it is as beautiful where you are as it is here. It is 81 degrees here in Arizona. And I can hear Maria's daughter packing her bags for Arizona because she misses us. But uh, it is 81 degrees. The humidity is shoe size. It's so low and it's just gorgeous now. And until mid-May, this is gonna be paradise here in Arizona. And we're all saying to each other, this is why we live here. This is why we live here. Cause it sure as heck ain't for the summer. Anyway, um, we're gonna talk a little bit before we begin the chapter, we're gonna talk a little more than we normally do. Because the chapter of vision for you is what we're going to start today. And this used to be chapter 12 in the first printing of the first edition. And in the second printing of the first edition, they made a change, they made a couple of changes. And the change that they made was they inserted appendix two at the back of the book because they were getting questions about what is, what are we doing wrong? We're doing everything you're saying, but we're not having this sudden spiritual experience. And they, they put appendix two in explaining that a, uh, a spiritual experience is sudden and profound and a spiritual awakening is slow in developing. I've never had a spiritual experience. I've only had a spiritual awakening of the educational kind. In other words, the more I learn, the closer to God I get. And they also made two other changes. They moved the doctor's opinion to the Roman numeral section of the book. And the reason that they moved the doctor's opinion to the Roman numeral section of the book is after the book was printed in, on April the 10th, 1939, and they had more of a chance to think about what they did, they realized, and Sam Shoemaker helped them to realize this, 
the book should be for alcoholics by alcoholics. And Dr. Silkworth, although he remains our great medical benefactor, he is not, was not, excuse me, he's, he's gone a long time. Uh, he was not an alcoholic. So they moved the doctor's opinion to the Roman numeral section at the front of the book. And they also changed something else for the second printing of the first edition, where it says in step 12 in the first printing of the first edition, and I have a one, one, somebody gave me a gift that's worth about $50,000. I have a first edition, first printing big book, and um, it's in a safe deposit box. And I'll be damned if I know where the key is. <laughs> They'll let me in there. I have no idea what that, where that key is. I know it's here somewhere, but don't, for, don't fear. I'll, I'll find it somehow. But it's in a safe deposit box. And it says, having had a spiritual experience, but every other printing or edition of the book since the first printing of the first edition will say, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So there have been some changes. So the next time somebody says, oh, they're never gonna change anything in the first 164 pages, tell them, yes, there has been some things that have been changed. And this used to be chapter 12 rather than chapter 11. There's 12 steps and there was 12 chapters to the book. Somebody's unmuted here, somebody's unmuted. Okay, now, before we begin this chapter, I would like to tell you a little bit of why the chapter is here, and then I want to relate some of my experiences with this. I'll do the second thing first. I'll talk about my experiences with this, and then I'm going to talk about the origin or the history of this chapter and what this chapter hopes to accomplish for us, the sufferers of addiction. I was born to two parents who were very quickly raised by me. <laughs> they, my mother was mentally ill. My mother was a wonderful person. She had no idea that she was even pregnant, not a clue that she was pregnant. And when I tell that, and we're live, when I do this at retreats or conventions, I always hear the, <gasps> from a lot of the women in the audience, they just can't believe that a woman could be pregnant and not even know it. Well, my mother had no idea that she was pregnant with me. As a matter of fact, on the morning that I was born in May of 1954, she called up the doctor and she described the kind of pain that she was having. And the doctor said, I don't know what could, what could, it sounds maybe like it's a kidney stone. I don't know what to tell you. He says, Virginia, come to the uh, hospital and I'll meet you there. My mother's name was Virginia. That's not a name you hear too often anymore. And my mother came and there I was, I was a kidney stone. And um, she had three distinct personalities. She could be a two-year-old, three-year-old, very, very immature, talking baby talk, talking like a little baby, like a little child, acting like a little child. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic. I mean, out of her mind, screaming and ranting and raving and just 
in your face, or she could be a pretty together person. You never knew what you were going to get or how long you were going to get it for. And she really loved me very, very much, very much. My mother and father, amidst all the things that I'm going to talk about this morning, I want to remind you, because I'm really reminding myself, because when I talk about this, it brings up a just a cornucopia of emotion, just a whole assortment of emotions, some good, some not so good. So I need to remind me. My mother loved me very, very much. And my mother did the best that she could do under the circumstances. There was no treatment that she sought or had for any of these, for any of this, nothing. She was an untreated, mentally ill person. And my mother was a 100 unit per day diabetic, 100 units a day of insulin diabetic. My father was an immigrant to this country. He came to this country in 1914. He was not a survivor of the Holocaust, but he was a survivor of the murder and mayhem that Jewish people underwent in Russia, Poland, Lithuania, the Ukraine, long before Hitler ever came onto the scene. There were pogroms, there was Jewish persecution in these places, and of a family of 40 people who were obliterated off the face of the earth on one horrible, nightmarish night. He was the sole survivor. He saw members of his family, mother, father, sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, individuals from six weeks old to 75 years old murdered and the sounds of the screaming and the bullets and the screaming and the screaming and the screaming haunted him his entire life. I don't know what he suffered from. I have been told by three psychiatrists that it's PTSD, but this is what I will share with you. He could hear a word. He could smell a food. He could hear a sound and he would burst into tears and he would be right back in that house on that horrible night. If you've never seen your father cry, I've seen my father cry 10,000 times. Often he would wake up in the middle of the night with the most horrific nightmares imaginable. He was reliving the sounds. He was reliving the horror of what he had been through as a 14 year old. He was forced to live in a country where he spoke neither the language nor knew the customs, nor was he educated. My father was many things, but he was really too old to have a little boy. And he was 54 years old on the day that I was born. And by the time I entered grammar school, he was 60. And by the time I graduated from high school, he was 72. I'm 67. 
and I'm a lot healthier and a lot more youthful and a lot more with it than my dad was at much, much younger points of his life. He did the best he could. He loved me very much, but I had no real parenting in the truest sense of the word, and I was desperate for it. I was a scared child. My mother and father lived on very little money. If it wasn't for my dad's social security, we would have been in real trouble. My dad was not a good businessman and his, the business that he was in had long seen its best days behind it. And we struggled from the day I was born. We lived in apartments. Our furniture was all hand-me-downs from other people. My dad drove 10, 12-year-old cars. You know, he, it, things were just not great. I was scared. I wet the bed and sucked my thumb at a, for a longer period of time than I care to talk about. And I was afraid of the world that I was born into. And from a very early age on, as I've shared here many times, I have vivid memories of people yelling and screaming at my parents about how fat I was getting, how much food I was eating, and how I was not going to have any kind of life. I looked different from the other kids as far back as six and seven years old. I had a protruding stomach where they did not. Never once in my entire life did anybody have to tell me about the starving kids in Africa and that I should eat all my food. They would tell me, don't eat so much, let the kids in Africa starve. No, they wouldn't say that at all. I'm just kidding. But the bottom line is, is that no one had to tell me to eat my food because of the starving kids in Africa or China or wherever it was that they were starving back in the 60s. I was lazy. I was scared. And I saw no point to life. My mother, most of the time, begged God for death. She did not want to live in this world. She just didn't. And she gave up. And she gave up at a very early age. And my father was a defeated person. I saw people that were vanquished by life. And I became vanquished at an early age too. I was scared and jealous and angry. And people would say to me things like, you'll never have a girlfriend. You'll never have a good job. You'll never be rich. You'll never do this. You'll never do that because you're so fat. Look at how fat you are. What is wrong with you? And I knew that there was something wrong with me because everybody told me that there was. I became emasculated by this disease at around 10, 11, 12, stripped of any male, maleness, stripped of it physically, stripped of it emotionally. And as girls would flip their hair and giggle and laugh at my friends' stupid, idiotic jokes, they didn't do that for me. They didn't do that when I was around. The only thing they wanted to know from me is, does your friend like me? Does your friend like this other girl? That was the only reason that they ever spoke to me ever in their lives. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. 
And to a very large degree, I am paying the price today for the Kentucky Fried Chicken and the Oreos that I ate in 1965 or 66. I have paid a very hefty price for this disease. Alone and alienated, defeated, jealous. I looked at the world and its people and I wanted to destroy them. My greatest joy in life was their misery and my greatest misery was their joy. But there was something that I could do to even the score. There was somewhere I could go so that I could even it up and I could be happy too. And this place was a place that I could go and it had golden arches or it had a sign in front of it that said Red Hot Ranch or Wolfies or whatever. If you're from the north side of Chicago, you're chuckling now. But the bottom line is I could go and eat food. And the crunch of potato chips and the chewy satisfaction of Rolos or chocolate turtles or Milky Way bars made the world right again. And so for those nine, 10 seconds that I would crack open a bag of shoestring potato chips, for the nine or 10 seconds after I would bust open an envelope of chocolate turtles, I was the quarterback of the Bears. I was Steve McQueen. I was James Bond and the man from Uncle, and everything rolled into one. I was just like everybody else. And the food allowed me to live in a world of complete falsehood and fantasy. And I lied when the truth was better, not only to you, but to myself about how everything was or was not going to be okay. But who cares? I've got Rice Krispies and Hershey syrup to pour on them. Food was my friend. Food was my lover. Food was my companion. Food made the world a good place. A place where my mother was just yammering in the other room and I could pay no attention and I didn't give a damn. And my dad, he was great. And my mom was great, but who cares? I've got Almond Joy bars. And it made the world a better place. And it worked like a charm until it didn't. Until it didn't. My food got awful salty at, at some point in my life, awful salty. And the reason that my food got awful salty is because it was mingled with my tears because the food wasn't working anymore. And as the tears would run down my face when I was 17, 18, 19, 
I would say to myself, stop, stop, don't do this. You're never going to have a life like this. You can't move. You can't stand. You can't sit. You can't get in and out of a car. You can't walk. Stop. And I couldn't. And I couldn't get drunk. And I couldn't get sober. The food stopped working. And I was 17 and 18 and 19. And I'm going to doctors and hearing your mother isn't going to live very long. And I've got nobody to turn to. But Doritos, they were always there for me. Milky Way was always there for me. And they were my comfort. And my mother died when I was 22. And now I'm going to an oncologist on a regular basis because my father smoked one Chesterfield king size after another, one after the other, after the other, after the other, frequently lighting one cigarette with the other cigarette. Every day of my life, I woke up to a thick cloud of smoke. And my apartment that I grew up in was a small four room apartment, one bedroom apartment. And I would wake up and you could barely see from one end to the other because of the cigarette smoke. At least in the summertime when the door and the windows were open, it wasn't so bad. But in the wintertime, and if you know anything about Chicago, winters are awfully cold there. You don't open the window unless you're nuts. You don't open the door unless you're nuts. But the bottom line is, is that that meant that the cloud of smoke would just be so thick you could cut it with a chainsaw. And he died of lung cancer that spread to his esophagus, that spread to his prostate, that spread to his kidneys and liver. And I'm 19, 20, 21, 22. And when I was 24, it was the Friday before Labor Day, my father had been in the hospital for about a month. You know how sick you gotta be to be in there for a month? And the doctor Silverman, he's dead now. He said to, he said to me, uh, we're gonna keep your dad as comfortable as we can. And I said, aren't you gonna do something? He said, where would you like me to start? Your father has lung cancer, has spread to his esophagus. He has prostate cancer. He's got kidney cancer. He's got cancer all over his abdomen. Where would you like me to start? And through tears, because I had nobody. I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, cousins, any of that. I don't have any of that at this. Nothing. Zero. And I'm a kid. I'm 24 years old. And I said, how much time does he have? He said about two and a half months. He said this to me in September. My father died November 11th. I mean, this guy had it pegged right. My dad died November 11th. And what did I do on the way home from him telling me this? I polished off a deep dish, king-size pizza. And while I was waiting for it, not one, but two antipastas and about a loaf to a loaf and a half of, of Italian bread at an Italian place on Devon Avenue. Food was my salvation 
And when it worked, it worked really good. But when it didn't work, all I got was fatter and fatter and more depressed and had more pain and more torture and more alienation and more embarrassment and more humiliation than a human being should have to stand. I wondered often, what crime did I commit to be condemned to this kind of life? And like my mother before me, I often begged God for death, begged him to take me, let me just go. There's no point to it. There's no point to this world. There's no point to life. Just let me go. And the son of a bee up in, in heaven made me live and I didn't want to. And where could I go? What could I do to take the pain of being fat away, to take the pain and the guilt and the shame and the humiliation of eating railroad cars full of baby Ruth's bar, Ruth bars? Where could I go? I could eat another railroad car full of baby Ruth bars to kill the pain of eating a baby Ruth bar by the carload. And my dad died in November of 1978. And my house, my apartment rather, was not paid for. I didn't, I wasn't paying my rent. My father left me about $150 and my mother left me about $32. So my grand total of their estate was a little under 200 bucks. I didn't know what the hell to do. I didn't know where to go, but I knew that I couldn't stop eating. And on February the 2nd, 1979, two friends dragged me kicking and screaming to OA. Now I don't tell my story and I didn't tell my whole story here and I'm not going to, but I want you to understand by my experience that I'm relating to you from the heart why this chapter is written and what its history is. Because the chapter is called A Vision for You. And our group on Sunday through Thursday is called A Vision for You. And the main meeting that I, or the big meeting that I go to every weekday, every single day, plus Sunday special edition, is called A Vision for You. Now think about the title while I explain the purpose of this chapter. God has a vision for you. And it's a vision of good and not bad. It's a vision of freedom and emancipation from the slavery of the food. The food is a form of slavery. I am in bondage to the food when I'm in this disease. I am in bondage to my desire to eat more and more and more and my inability to fend off the idea that I don't want to eat this anymore. I can't resist it. The mental twist and the physical allergy define me and rule me and enslave me. They punish me. 
The disease of compulsive overeating is why we're here. We are not here because we ate compulsively. We are here because we are compulsive overeaters. And they sound very much the same. But normal eaters sometimes eat compulsively because they overeat and they abuse food on certain occasions. But they are not compulsive overeaters. The disease of compulsive overeating is different from the action of eating compulsively. I know I'll get some Q&A stuff on this, so I'll explain it now. Again, sometimes normal eaters abuse food. Sometimes normal drinkers get drunk. That doesn't mean that they're alcoholics or compulsive overeaters. We are not here because we ate compulsively. We are here because we are compulsive overeaters. Now, I have said thousands of times, where was God when I was suffering? And the answer is, trust me, he was crying too. I ransacked my own life, but I hurt my mother and I hurt my father. Just because my mother was crazy and just because my dad was old doesn't mean that they didn't cry a river of tears as to what they saw their son going through. They loved me. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. A vision for you is from God. And the vision for you is that you will have a spiritual awakening and be free. Steps five and nine are the great emancipators. Steps five and nine are the great emancipators. But you have to work all the steps, obviously. If five and nine are the great emancipators, two and 10 are the most underutilized, three and four are the most misunderstood. We'll get into that because as we flip the book and start going back to the beginning, we'll start over again. A vision for you is God telling you through Bill's hand what he envisions for you. When my father died, I went to the food. When I got divorced, when my child who lives in New York City treated me the way she did, does, I went to the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous and I got better relief and more happiness than I've ever had in my life. What I was trading was the pleasure of the food for the deep happiness of the recovery. Let me say that again. I want you to pay attention. I was trading pleasure from the food for the happiness of the recovery. I would rather have happiness and freedom than momentary orgasmic pleasure from the chocolate. That momentary nine seconds will not sustain me. If it did, I wouldn't have eaten a second railroad car full of Doritos. I wouldn't have eaten a second 
railroad car full of whatever, uh, Almond Joy bars. Who buys Mounds bars? For the same money, you get the, obviously these are not Jewish people buying a Mounds bar. I, I don't understand it, but okay, that's fine. All right. But anyway, the bottom line is I'm trading a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of happiness and deep-seated fulfillment and a fellowship that supports me and a God who guides me and helps me so that I can fulfill the prophecy of page 77, where it says, our real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. Eating milk duds never made me more important to anybody or of help to anybody, except maybe that company that makes them and the store owner. Let's go to page 151. I'll give you a second to get there while I take a sip of water. Every time I check the time, I want to vomit because I had not intended to take half of our time talking about me. I wanted to get into the chapter, but I feel that it was time well spent because the purpose of the chapter is to show you again what is out there because part of the fear that we have and i i've been dealing with this now for 42 years part of the fear that we have isn't just oh my god i'm going to be hungry that's a big part of it i don't want to be hungry i don't want to be hungry yeah that's that i understand that's a surface kind of fear but how am i going to recreate without the food how am i going to entertain friends without going out for coffee. How come their coffee costs 89 cents and my coffee costs $23? How come their coffee came in a cup and my coffee came in bowls and plates and every other damn thing? How come? Because I am a compulsive overeater and they're not. Let's go to page 151. The chapter is pure poetry, pure prose, pure, pure beauty. This is the most beautifully written chapter of the book, in my opinion. And let's start a vision for you. A vision for you. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. Let's stop right there. I often would go out for meals with people or by, by myself, obviously is not applicable to this. I would go out and I would be very upset because they'd be talking about the girls that they're dating. They would be talking about the careers or the families that they're starting. They'd be talking about going to the estate planner because their, their parents were leaving them all this money. And I was left out of that. And then the food would come. And I no longer cared about that. I was good. I was right. I was right with the world. I had my food. 
And that's what food did for me. But what it did to me was inhumane. You wouldn't treat your worst enemy the way food treated me. Let's continue. But not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. See, I said the food stopped working. And the food stopped working to the point where I couldn't eat enough of it to get high. I couldn't eat enough of it so that I was worry-free. It stopped working. The old pleasures were gone. They were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. The diets that I went on, the oaths that I swore to God, I'm never gonna eat like this again. I'm gonna get skinny. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. All the time, the power of the universe was there to tap into. I didn't look for it. I didn't know to look for it because everybody in my entire existence from the day I was born said to me something that was untrue. They said, you can do it. You got to get your willpower in line. You got to be disciplined. You have to use your discipline. And then my favorite one is, if you cared about your mother, you wouldn't get so fat. If you cared about your father, you wouldn't get so fat. I cared about my mother and I cared about my father, but you better not try to take that ice cream cone out of my face because I'll kill you if you touch it again because I didn't know that there was a spiritual remedy to what I was going through. And it took longer than I care to admit before I would finally surrender. Let's keep going. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. You know, I don't often picture in my mind compulsive overeaters sitting around compulsively overeating. It's not a very appealing sight in my mind. It's not a very appealing sight. So I picture alcoholics at a bar and they're at the bar and they're buying each other drinks and they're hoisting one for old Fred who's no longer with us and old Margaret who's no longer with us and they're drinking and they're having a good time and they're dancing. And that's the way it is for alcoholics for a while. And then it's not. And then they're isolated and alone and in desperate straits. I went to AA for nine years. I lived in Eugene, Oregon, hence the duck shirt. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. Now, there is no OA in Eugene, Oregon. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. I tried to start a bunch of meetings there with my then wife, and we failed every time. We just, failure was all around me. I tried. I couldn't do it. And I got abstinent in Eugene. But one of the things I knew from my experience in AA is 
that conviviality of the drinking, that conviviality picture of the bar and the glasses tinking and they're buying rounds and they're dancing and they're cavorting and they're canoodling and whatever they're doing, it doesn't last very long for the alcoholic. It may last a while for the social drinker. It may last a while for the moderate drinker, but it doesn't, or the heavy drinker or the light drinker, but not so for the alcoholic because they have a permanent progressive and fatal disease. And so do we. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. It gets worse all the time. And the disease is fatal. This disease will extract a price from you that you will be, have a hard time paying. And the only way you're going to pay that price is with God. And the only mechanism which to pay that price with is the steps. Without the steps, there's nothing. There's no currency to recover. There's just no chance. The, we have a disease, it says, in chapter three, at the end of the chapter, the very last thing that God leaves us with at the end of chapter three is we have a disease that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. I change the word experience to awakening because most of us will not have a spiritual experience. What is the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? A spiritual experience is sudden and profound. And a spiritual awakening is slow in developing and will develop over time. And that's the difference. One is fast, one is slow. The one that's fast is the experience. The one that's slow is the awakening. As we became subjects of King Alcohol, notice King Alcohol is in capital letters because while an alcoholic is drinking, he is a subservient slave to the king, alcohol, and it becomes his God. Milky Ways, chocolate turtles, Doritos, onion rings, French fries were my gods. My mother used to say, my zun, which means my son in Yiddish, my zun, you are a slave to food. You are a slave to the food. And my answer to that was always F you but she was 100% correct. I am, not was, am a slave to food and only a power greater than myself could have emancipated me. And my God has continued to work on my emancipation every day throughout my life. As long as I do the steps, let's continue. King alcohol, shivering denizens, of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that his loneliness settled down. The end stages of this disease are as lonely as a lonely person can possibly get. The end stages of this disease is an isolated existence, isolated existence. Compulsive overeating, being a compulsive overeater, is like being in the hands of an abuser. And what does an abuser do? An abuser will 
isolate you from your source of help. A disease like this is a good abuser. And what it does is it isolates you. It makes you ashamed to walk in the street because it heaps all kinds of guilt and shame and fear and anger into your life so that you will not be able to tap into the help that you may need. And the very first thing that this disease does is it isolates you. You become a prisoner of this disease, literally a prisoner. You walk the streets a free man or a free woman, but you're not free. You're not free because the mental obsession and the physical allergy will enslave you. You cannot get away from your thoughts. The geographics that you try, the gymnasiums that you join, the religions that you try, the things that you try, the things that you do end up failing because we have a disease that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. I am not discounting religion. I am not discounting psychiatry or psychology. I am not discounting medicine. I'm discounting none of those things. Look, when I needed my knees replaced or my hips replaced, I didn't go to the meeting at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club and say, come on, guys, heal me up here. I went to a surgeon. I went to a doctor. When I have a a, a flu, I did a... uh, I, I, I did a, uh, a, a retreat in Israel. And by the time I got home, I had to talk the doctor out of putting me in the hospital. I had bronchitis so bad, I couldn't see straight when I got home from Israel. I was so sick, I could barely walk off the plane. And um, he gave me a pack, And within five days, I was, I was myself again. I was great. This is a couple of years ago. Or anytime I get sick, I go to the doctor but they can't help me with compulsive overeating. For that, I have to come to OA. Going to anywhere else but OA for relief from this disease is like going to the gas station to try to rent a tuxedo. They don't have them. It's not there. Let's continue. It thickened. What thickened? The horrible loneliness ever becoming blacker ever becoming more ominous. What does that speak to? It speaks to the progressive nature of this disease. When we read Bill's story, as we will, because we're going to flip around after this chapter, I'm going to try to time it so that this chapter takes us about to the end of the year, and we'll have our little Simchas Torah, and we'll go all the way back to the beginning, and we'll do that. Um, But the bottom line is, the, the progressive nature of the disease. When we read Bill's story in the first eight pages, every paragraph, every sentence, the disease is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And in the second eight pages, it's getting better and better and better and better. Because as the disease is progressive, the recovery, thank you, God, is progressive as well. I am more recovered today than I was five years ago. I am more recovered today than I was 10 years ago. Now, I got older, so the disease also progresses, but my recovery progresses as well. 
Yes, Virginia, they can progress at the same time. But if I stop doing the work, the progression of the disease will overtake me and I will die in the food, a miserable, lonely death. The disease is permanent. It doesn't matter how long I've been free. Remember the man of 30 did some spree drinking? He remained bone dry for 25 years. And he was dead within four. The disease picked up right at the point that he picked up and killed him. The jaywalker. Every sentence, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Jim, Fred, worse and worse and worse and worse. You, worse and worse and worse. I don't care how long you've been abstinent. I don't care how male or female, straight or gay, black or white, Jew or Gentile, Muslim, Buddhist. I don't care who you are or what you are. You are human. And in your humanness, you will never rise above the level of being a human being. And as such, you have a permanent, progressive and fatal disease. Let's continue. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Where did we find some of that companionship, understanding, and approval? Often with lesser companions, often with binge buddies, people, places, relationships that you knew damn well you were you were not destined for, but you hung on to them because you could eat your head off in that relationship and nobody would say anything to you. And that's why you stayed. Think back. It was more important that you be comfortable eating in front of this person than it was that you could make a life with them a lot of the time. Not every case but a lot of the time. Momentarily we did, then we would, then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. I was terrified of the world that we lived in, terrified of women, especially the more attractive you were, the more you scared the crap out of me because I knew I knew my own self, I was going to get a crush on you and you were going to crush me in, in return. I, I knew that I didn't have the money to get in there. I knew that I didn't have what it takes to go there. I knew that I didn't have what it takes. I hadn't done the work and that I was too fat. I knew that the world was going to reject me. It was only a matter of when. I was fat. I could have been a lot of other things and I would have been okay. But I was fat. And that meant that I didn't have the same membership card to the human race as you did. Not you here, but you, the people out there. Bewilderment, confusion reigned supreme in my life. I didn't know which end was up. I didn't know which side of the bed to pee on. I didn't know what to do. I was confused 
And oftentimes I would wait to see what others thought or what others were doing or what others were thinking before I would formulate a direction or an opinion. I couldn't operate on my own. I was what you were. If you were a Democrat, I was a Democrat. If you were a Republican, I was a Republican. If you liked this, I liked it too. If you hated this, I hated it too, because I was scared to death that if I went against you, you'd leave me. I never was myself. That came to pass, and it is the most joyous feeling in the world. Not that my opinion is so godlike, not that my opinion is so wonderful, but I... I've gotten to a point where if I think it's yes, I say yes. If I think it's no, I say no. And I understand sometimes there's compromises in life. Hang on. But I can speak my mind as an emancipated human being. I can speak my mind and tell people what I'm thinking. And that is so, that is so free. There is so much freedom for me to be able to do that because I used to have to think one jump ahead of you, like a checkers game. I had to think ahead of you. What do you think I should think? What do you think I should feel? What do you think I should do? And then I tried to do that. It's exhausting. It's the most exhausting way to live. Being me, I have energy to do other things. I have the energy to do other things and I'm not so exhausted all the time. Frustration, constantly frustrated, constantly angry, constantly jealous, constantly wondering what the F was wrong with me and when is this going to end? I'm 67 years old. Doctors have been pronouncing my death sentence from the time I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. I broke my ankle in gym class. I went to Edgewater Hospital, which is condos now. And Dr. Bernstein said to my mother, I can see him now. I can hear him now. He looked over his glasses. He says, Virginia, this is when the doctors put your cast on. Now they don't even, now it's a nurse, but, or something. He says, Virginia, he isn't going to live to see 30. He's 300 pounds and he's 17 years old. What do you think is going on in your house that could change? Despair. I didn't want to live. You take your world and you shove it up your butt. I, am, I want no part of it. I don't get what it is to live in this world. I don't understand what it is to live in this world. And every time I catch a glimpse of myself in a mirror, and every time I catch a glimpse of myself in a store window, I want to vomit. I didn't fit into your world. You stick it in your ear. I don't fit in your clothes. I can't ride in your cars. I can't sit on your furniture. I can't fit in a restaurant booth. I can't walk. I can't stand. I can't live. I can't do anything right. It doesn't seem that I have what it takes to live in this world. So please, for the love of God, 
shoot me or poison me, but let me know when you're going to do it because I want to make sure I've got lots of Oreo cookies in my stomach when you do it so I can go on a full stomach. I never saw myself as being able to achieve anything. The fact that there's 124 of you or 123, because I'm in there too, 123 of you that are tuning in to hear me this morning is more than mind blowing. More than mind blowing. It never occurred to me that anybody would ever want to hear anything that I had to say at all. And yet at some egotistical level, I thought I had all the answers to life. That's the ass kicker in the whole thing. I had a life that was that was horrible. And yet I believe that I was like the, the guy that you should come to. What, what, what craziness, what, what mental illness did I have? Forget about my mother. Forget that. She, you know, well, look at me. My bills aren't paid. I look like a hippopotamus. I smell like a zoo or I smell like a, like a, a, a park district bathroom in Chicago because my hygiene is terrible. I, I look like an idiot. And yet I wanted to be the shell answer man because I felt I had the answers. Come to me and I'll enlighten you on the secrets of life. What kind of an idiot was I? There's a huge difference between eating compulsively and being a compulsive overeater. And I hope I've made that distinction. Normal people today, normal eaters will go to restaurants or at home or whatever, and they will, somebody's not food, and they will eat compulsively. They'll eat a little too much of this or they'll eat a little too much of that. But a compulsive overeater is someone who suffers from a disease of the mind and a disease of the body, the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. Big, they sound very similar, but they are worlds apart. The difference between alcohol and alcoholic, worlds apart. But what they really have is alcoholism. When you suffer from alcoholism, now it's gonna be Saturday night here, in a couple hours here, seven, eight hours, it's going to be Saturday night. I'm on the West Coast, so it's only almost 11 o'clock. There's going to be, I live on Resort Row here in, in Scottsdale, and our number one industry here is tourism. If we don't have to, like last year, these businesses were closing up like there were no tomorrow. They, they couldn't make it. And now the snowbirds seem to be back. The traffic is bad again. And and, and, and all this, but I live right on Resort Row. There's bars and there's restaurants. I mean, you, you, you can't count them all. Well, there's gonna be people tonight that are gonna get drunk and they're not alcoholics, but they're gonna get drunk. There's a big difference between that and alcoholism. Unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. It takes one of us to speak the language of the heart to the rest of us. And as we move forward in this chapter, we're going to see this vision for you begin to describe what God has 
as a vision for you. And we're going to talk about Bill Dotson. And we're going to talk about Bill and Bob. And we're going to talk about you. And we're going to talk about me. And as we move through this chapter next week, we're going to solidify our understanding, hopefully, of this vision. Because we come in here and we are not happy campers. Nobody comes in here on a roll. Everybody who comes in here comes in here because things have not gone well. All right. Nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I've got more money than I can count. I look fantastic. I feel great. Everything's coming up roses without thorns. I think I'll join Overeaters Anonymous. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. So come back next week. We're going to re-examine this 